Bonjour, bienvenue, hello, and welcome to the Good Life France podcast, where we dive deep into the culture, history, traditions, food, and wine of France. In fact, this is where you'll discover everything French in a fabulous and fun way. I'm Janine Marsh. I'm your host, and though I'm British, born in London, I've lived in the north of France for many years, and I feel French in my heart. I've studied the French, and I've written about the French way of life in several books, and I'm the editor of the Good Life France magazine and website. And when I'm not writing, traveling, working and renovating my old French farmhouse, or being a maid to one of my many animals, I have about 50 in total. I love to chat to you here on this podcast with my podcast partner, Olivier Geoffrey. Salut everyone, that's sort of French for hi when you're with friends. It's more casual than bonjour. Uh, it's very common. And yes, I'm French and I live in uh, sunny Lyon in the south of France, the opposite end of France to Janine. And when I'm not chatting to Janine here, I play the best vintage French music on my radio station ParisChanson.fr because uh, I love French chansons, that's uh, simple, and uh, especially the old classics from Edith Piaf, Charles Navour, Charles Trenet, Maurice Chevalier, and many more. And who doesn't love those classics uh, anyway? Plus, it's a fantastic soundtrack to listen to while you are visiting France. But enough about us, let's get this show on the road, let's find out what we are going to talk about today. The Good Life France Podcast. Everything you want to know about France and more with Janine Marsh and Olivier Geoffrey. Now, a while back, we did a podcast about Versailles and of course, Queen Marie Antoinette was mentioned and we said then, there's so much more to say about her. So today's podcast is dedicated to the enigma of Versailles, a fashion icon to this day and a woman who continues to fascinate people more than 200 years after her death. And we'll talk about some of the most important times in her life, her fashion style, her family, and where to find traces of her legacy in Paris from her homes to the shops she frequented. What a great topic. I love it already. Uh, it's true in France, we are just uh, as fascinated by this queen, Marie Antoinette, who had a uh, head uh, cut off by our ancestors. These days, we are not so angry with her, rather we feel a bit sorry for her. So let's step into the opulent world of the last queen of France. Let's start with Marie Antoinette's arrival in France. She was just 14 years old when she was sent to marry the king-in-waiting, Louis XVI. And he was just a year older than her. Honestly, I can't imagine how daunting and frightening that must have been. Her marriage to Louis was a diplomatic alliance. They'd never even met each other before. And their early years were certainly marked by awkwardness and distance. It was a really rocky start for this teenage queen in a foreign court. Her young husband-to-be was known as uh, the Dauphin, which uh, indicated he was the eldest son of the king. And his wife was known as uh, the Dauphine. Makes sense. He wrote in his diary on the day she arrived, May 14th, 1770, interview with Madame la Dauphine. It was the first time they had met, and on May 16, he wrote my wedding apartment in the gallery Royal Feast at the Opera Hall. Not very romantic. No. Not, no, no words about love or even liking her, poor woman. Her journey from Austria took three weeks. When she arrived in France, she had a beautiful Austrian wedding dress to wear, but she was made to change it to wear a French-style dress. And people said, oh, it makes her a thousand times more charming. And that really set the stage for her. I mean, she was pulled and pushed from pillar to post. 
But the dress did the job and she was cheered all the way to Paris by the crowds that gathered to watch her journey to meet her husband-to-be and become a queen-in-waiting. When they actually had the wedding, there were 5,000 guests. And as the couple walked through the famous Hall of Mirrors to the Chapel of Versailles, drums rolled, flutes played. The ceremony was followed by days of parties, dances, banquets, opera, masked balls, boat rides on the Grand Canal at Versailles, and a huge firework display of 20,000 rockets, wow. watched by 200,000 people. You're right, uh, a relationship with the king was not uh, very romantic, at least uh, to start with. The bride and groom were both shy and inexperienced, which led to trouble in the bedroom. Although over the years, they made several attempts, nothing at Versailles was uh, really private, as you can imagine. Their marriage wasn't consummated until seven years after their wedding night. That's crazy. Some say that uh, Louis had a physical problem that required a little surgery. I wonder what. But most evidence suggests that the couple was just clueless. But in the end, they did actually grow quite fond of each other, which is just as well because divorce in those days was not an easy thing. And here's a fun fact. The King's Master of Ceremonies provided 12 gold rings for Marie Antoinette to try on, which she did one by one until one fit because they didn't have like ring gauges in those days, apparently. So what sort of life did uh, Marie-Antoinette have? Well, a daily routine was anything but private. As I said previously, rising at the crack of dawn, every moment from her dressing to her bedtime was a public affair attended by courtiers. Imagine having an audience while you're trying on shoes or having a bath or worse. Yeah, much worse. It was actually recorded that the Queen bathed daily and she wore a linen dressing gown buttoned up to the neck. Don't blame her for that and with all those prying eyes. Louis, her husband, was obsessive about recording his daily activities and his diaries and notebooks are preserved to this day in the French National Archives. So we know from them that he actually took 43 baths over the course of 26 years. <laughs> well, in those days in France, it wasn't that uh, fashionable to bath. People just used to uh, wash the worst bits when necessary. Oh, nice. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. It was believed that bathing was uh, unhealthy because so-called uh, medical experts at the Sorbonne University in Paris, yes, had declared that warm water opened the pores which let disease in. Yes, well, every generation has its experts, doesn't it? <laughs> and when the Queen began to lose her popularity with the people, they actually slandered her for a bathing habit, saying it was too German for a Queen of France. They didn't then have bathrooms like we know them. There was no permanent bath in a room, but the Queen had her bathtub rolled into the room. So they called it a bathroom and then they filled it bucket by bucket with hot water. Actually, when I was a kid growing up in, in a London, we didn't have a bathroom either. And we had a tub that hung on the wall, which my mum would fill with buckets of water. I wasn't like Marie Antoinette, though. Anyway, once the bathtub was full, the queen would add perfumes to the water. She apparently used either a special herbal mixture that included salt, thyme, the herb and marjoram, or sometimes she used perfume sachets, which had sweet almonds, pine nuts and lily bulbs. And this was a special mix designed just for her, for her baths by her perfumier. Sometimes she ate breakfast in the bath too. And after that, she would go through a public dressing ceremony, although when she got older, she became queen and was no longer under all the rules of the court anymore. She actually toned it all down. But that brings us quite nicely to the queen's fashion and hairstyles. Yes, and that's a big topic, this one. 
Let's start with uh, those hairs. Uh, she uh, popularized the poof, a towering hairstyle adorned with anything from feathers to miniature ships. In the 18th century, it was fashionable for women to expand themselves. Their dresses were widened with panniers like upside-down baskets under their skirts, and hair was elevated. Big, big hair, nothing like the uh, 1980s penchant for big hair, much bigger than that. Hair was combed, curled, greased with a mix of bear or ox fat, nice, not, and then dusted with powder as well. And if you think pink hair and blue hair are a 21st century Kardashian thing, you're wrong because the women of the royal court often coloured their hair with blue, lilac, pink and even gold dust. And cushions or pads made of horse hair were inserted to give height and false hair clipped on to give length. Oh, lovely. <laughs> now, the Queen and all the women of the court like to outdo each other with mad hairstyles and theme their big hair. So they added toy ships, like you said, but they also added jewels, even vegetables, uh, vases that contained real flowers. There was one fashion victim, and I think we can definitely use that word here. She had her hairstylist weave a concoction on her head that was over three feet tall and included a gilded birdcage with a live tweeting bird inside. And one duchess had a scale model of her son's nursery in her hair, complete with nanny and servants. No, not real nanny and servants, little scale models, like a little Lego town on her head. Very chic. It's getting far too technical for me, and I, <laughs> and I don't have hair anyway. So, but the problem with hair that big is that often the women couldn't fit into their carriage and uh, had to kneel on the floor or ride with their heads out of the window. How practical! <laughs> and the big hairdos were definitely a fire hazard at the candle-lit castles. Uh, what with not bathing, not having particularly good hygiene, fleas were pretty much on every head. Mm -mm. So some fashionable women carried long, thin sticks with claws for scratching their heads with. Ooh. The Queen's wardrobe was uh, equally lavish. Filled uh, with uh, gowns of uh, luxurious fabrics, Marie Antoinette's style was extravagant. She wasn't just uh, setting trends, no, she was a fashion revolution in a corset. Makeup and shoes were a big deal for the Queen. She favoured a pale, powdered face with bright rouge. She loved lipstick too, which in those days was a mix of animal fat and red colouring, usually from beetroot or crushed insects. Mm. Lipstick was actually so popular in the 1780s that apparently French women went through two million pots a year. And she loved her high-heeled shoes as well. Her shoe collection was so vast that it would make even the most avid collector blush. It was claimed that she had anything up to 3,000 pairs of shoes in her wardrobe at one time, though it's likely it was a more modest 500 pairs. Nothing, really. Wow. I can't even think how many shoes that would look like. My husband moans at me because I've got about 10 pairs, maybe a few more. <laughs> Same anyway. here. Yeah. <laughs> she had uh, tiny feet, size 33 or a two and a half in the US. And as for dresses, well, apparently she ordered up to 300 dresses a year. And you've got to bear in mind that these were all made to measure. They were all completely unique. Wow. Her clothing allowance was the equivalent of about three and a half million dollars a year now, but she often spent twice as much as that, up to $20,000 a day on clothes, shoes, makeup and jewels. And it was said that she never wore the same thing twice. Now, all this spending gave her the nickname Madam Deficit. 
She caused uproar when in 1781 she wore a muslin dress designed for her by her favourite dressmaker, Rose Bertin. She used material not made in France and she dressed like a milkmaid. When a portrait of her wearing the dress was unveiled in public, people went mad. They were so angry that she would dress like a commoner for fun when the real commoners were starving due to food shortages. But the wealthy people of England and Europe lapped up this new fashion, they called this simple fashion, they called it. And many say this influenced women's fashions throughout the 18th century. And a few years later, a scandal over a stolen necklace worth a king's ransom tarnished the queen's reputation further. A thief convinced a cardinal that the queen wanted him to buy the necklace on her behalf and then promptly disappeared with it, obviously. Although the queen was proven innocent, the mud stuck in a way. Not long later, the French Revolution began and the queen's excesses at a time of poverty for her ordinary people certainly didn't help. She also wasn't popular with some of the nobles and they loved to add fire to the smoke of a scandal that involved her. Marie Antoinette's name was often linked with lovers, but it seems likely that it was fake news of the day. She was watched constantly, so she didn't really have that much of a chance to canoodle. But she's famously said to have had a Swedish lover, one Count Axel von Fersen. While historians debate the true nature of their relationship, their intimate letters suggest a deep connection, but no proof that she was unfaithful to the king. She was, in fact, quite a devoted mother. And it's a side of her personality that's often overshadowed by her queenly duties. She had four children, but only one survived to adulthood. Her love for her kids was really clear in all her letters. She was often writing about her worries, her joy, the children's well-being. And she's, you know, normally she's portrayed as a selfish queen, spending the country's money on her lavish lifestyle. And she did, there's no doubt about that. But she wasn't completely unconcerned about the suffering all around her. She had a compassionate side, especially when it came to children. And in fact, she adopted several children. The first one was in 1776. It was an orphan called Armand. And he lived with the royal family in the palace until the French Revolution, when he then joined the revolutionaries. And Marie-Antoinette gave birth to her first child in 1778, Marie-Thérèse Charlotte. And the Queen asked that her maid's daughter of the same age act as a companion to the young princess. When the maid died, the Queen adopted the daughter and instructing that both girls be treated equally. And she also adopted a young Senegalese boy and three orphaned girls. The two eldest went to a convent and one lived in the palace. And she supported many other children financially. Though she wasn't perfect, she does seem to have had a good heart indeed, as you said, Janine. Yeah, I think so. Of her four children, only the eldest, Marie-Thérèse Charlotte, survived her mother. She had two sons. One died age seven of tuberculosis and one died age 10 in prison during the revolution. And her youngest child was a daughter who died age 11 months in 1787. And people said she died from convulsions triggered by the pain of her teeth coming through, which broke the Queen's heart. The Queen's inner circle was a mix of uh, nobility and confidence. She was particularly close to the Princesse de Lamballe and the Duchesse de Polignac, women who became her closest friends and companions in the often lonely and cutthroat environment of Versailles. These friendships, however, also attracted criticisms uh, and envy as they were seen as symbols of the Queen's perceived favoritism and extravagance. Yeah, it wasn't an easy life, you know. Despite her luxurious lifestyle, Marie Antoinette's life did have hardships and the French Revolution dramatically changed her fate, as we all know. 
from a life of opulence, she faced public hatred, imprisonment, and ultimately a tragic end. Her last years contrasted starkly with her early life, that's for sure. In the world of fashion, even during uh, imprisonment, Marie-Antoinette maintained her dignity. She wore a simple white dress to her execution, a marked departure from her previous lavish attire. Yet it was a powerful statement of a grace under pressure. On October the 16th, 1793, she died, aged 37, by guillotine, just as her husband had before her. The crowd cheered and shouted, Vive la République! As her head fell, some rushed to deep handkerchiefs in her blood. Oh, creepy. Very creepy. Her body was hurled into an unmarked grave along with her husband's. And 22 years later, she and Louis were reunited and properly reburied at the Basilica of Saint-Denis in Paris. The guillotine that was used to chop their heads off is said to be owned by the Tussaud Museum in London, actually. It was bought by Joseph, son of Marie Tussaud, and the waxwork artist from the grandson of the official executioner. Madame Tussaud also created death masks for many of the victims of the guillotine during the revolution, including Marie Antoinette. If you'd like to follow in the Queen footsteps around Paris, here are a few of our favourite places that you shouldn't miss. Yes, starting with um, that one. The royals moved from castle to castle and Marie Antoinette left her mark in many of them. At the Chateau of Rambouillet in a forest on the outskirts of Paris, the Queen had a dairy built from marble. And don't miss the extraordinary chaumière au coquillage or shell cottage, built for a friend, the Princesse de Lamballe. Chateau of Fontainebleau, which is not very far from Paris at all, the Queen commissioned a Turkish boudoir, which you can still see. It was uh, a room that was supposed to allow her to boudet or to sulk away from the rest of the court. Sadly, however, she never got to enjoy it. The work was put on hold when the French Revolution broke out and it wasn't completed during her lifetime. Also, you can head to the sumptuous Palace of Versailles, of course. We have a full episode about it. It's a short journey out of the city to see the home where the Queen spent much of her time and truly left her mark. You really get a feel for her taste and style in her state rooms and private rooms, full of pale silks and beautiful wood carvings, paintings of cherubs and flowers. The monumental gilded palace dazzled the world when it was created and still does today. No photo does uh, justice to its opulence. You need to go there. The 700 rooms were home to some 3,000 courtiers, but up to 20,000 people would be present for events, dinners and parties. Blimey, imagine all the clearing up after that lot. Oh, ouch. Wow, yeah. To escape life in the spotlight, Marie Antoinette spent quite a lot of time at the Petit Trianon, which is a small, more intimate palace within the grounds of the Palace of Versailles. Initially, that was a gift from Louis XV to his mistress, Madame Pompadour, but then Louis XVI gave it to Marie Antoinette and she used it as her private refuge. Also in the grounds of Versailles is the Queen's Hamlet, which was another escape from the tedium and rules of the palace and where she sometimes dressed up as a shepherdess. So she wanted to create a tranquil space of rustic beauty and there were little cottages and barns and farm animals. It functioned as a working farm too and with another dairy, she obviously liked dairy and milk. And the royal children were educated about agriculture and food production there. And the Osmotech Perfume Museum in the town of Versailles is the world's largest scent archive and famous for recreating Marie Antoinette's perfume using spices, honey, oils and aromatics. In Paris, 
to find Marie Antoinette's legacy, really good place to go to is the Chateau and Gardens of Bagatelle. They were incredibly created in just 64 days in 1775 as a result of a bet between Marie Antoinette and the king's brother, the Count of Artois. A bagatelle in French means trivial or trifle, and the area was once used for hunting. And when the Count purchased it, Marie Antoinette bet him 100,000 livres, which was the currency of the day, probably about $2.5 million in today's money. But she bet him that he couldn't create somewhere to receive her after she returned from a two-month journey. But he won the bet. He spent 1 million livres, hired 900 workmen, and won that bet right out. Now it's a magnificent rose garden, gigantic trees, waterfalls, caves. And in the summer, there are concerts and exhibitions held. Also a must-see, the Louvre Museum, of course, where you will find several paintings of the Queen, including by Elizabeth Louise Vigée-Lebrun. She was Marie-Antoinette's personal portraitist, despite being a commoner and a woman, quite unusual for an artist at the time. She painted more than 30 portraits of the Queen. There are more of her paintings at the Palace of Versailles, of course. And when does the Tuileries Gardens at the Louvre, where the Queen would have strolled often as the royal couple stayed at the Tuileries Palace during the French Revolution under a sort of house arrest. The castle was destroyed in 1871 during another revolution known as the Paris Commune. And not many of the Queen's clothes remains, you know, despite the fact there were so many of them made. Most of them were destroyed during the French Revolution or stolen, but some are kept at the Palais Galliere Fashion Museum, which has the world's leading collection of 18th century dresses. And some of her clothes also survive in small collections all around France, like at the Chateau of Montaigne Saint Bernard in Annecy, in Haute Savoie, where one of the Marie Antoinette's dresses is kept in a glass case. It was given to one of the ladies in waiting who lived in the castle and it looks like it was made yesterday. It's absolutely beautifully preserved. So many things to see. And yeah. uh, Rue Saint-Honoré as well in Paris is where Marie-Antoinette's favourite dressmaker, Madame Rose Bertin, had a boutique first at uh, number 234, 234, and later in front of the Saint-Roch Church. They would meet almost every week and Rose was dubbed Minister of Fashion by the Queen's critics. Let's talk about perfume. There is a perfumery called Lubin Perfumery, which was opened in Paris by Pierre-François Lubin, who was trained from the age of 10 by Jean-Louis Farjon. He was, he was the supplier of the Queen's perfume and beauty products. He created a pair of scented gloves for her using hyacinth scent, violets, musk, jonquille and carnations. Absolutely. Mm -mm. When the Queen was in prison, Lubin would take her parcels of her favourite toiletries from Fagion. Sulpice de Beauve, nice name, was the king's chemist and he made chocolate buttons for the queen called the pistols in which he disguised the taste of a medicine. After the revolution, he opened de Beauve and Galet chocolatier in Paris, very famous. To this day, they make pistols, but no medicine inside, of course. Well, I've had some of those. They're delicious. And talking of delicious, pop into Patisserie Store, Rue Montegoy, the oldest cake shop in Paris, which opened in 1730. It's entirely possible the Queen may have indulged here. The shop was opened by her father-in-law's pastry chef. Not far from the Louvre, you can also visit the Conciergerie, once a medieval royal palace. In the French Revolution, it became a centre of detention and Marie-Antoinette's prison. 
Here you can visit a prison cell. It's a sort of place where you will get goosebumps, definitely. Oh, yeah. There's a really creepy room there. They called the grooming room, which is where they took the prisoners and cut their hair off before they took them to the guillotine. And from there, she was taken by cart along the Rue Saint-Honoré to what is now Place de la Concorde to be executed in front of what is now the Hotel de Crillon. The square was called the Place de la Révolution at the time. The chapelle expiatoire marks the spot of uh, a first burial on place Louis XVI. Inside the chapel is a reproduction of a last moving letter to the king's sister, which reads, I am calm as one is when one's conscience reproaches one with nothing. I embrace you with all my heart as I do my poor dear children. My God, how heartrending it is to leave them forever. Farewell. Marie Antoinette's life was a blend of luxury, controversy and tragedy. Her story is a fascinating glimpse into the complexities of royal life and the turbulent times of the late 18th century France. No wonder we remain fascinated with her tale. But now it's time for a listener's question. Got a question about France? Well, ask the experts. We reply to you in each episode. And we do it for free. Today's question is from Laura Turnbull of Liverpool in England. She asks, my friend says there are more dogs than people living in Paris. Is it true? Well, that's a funny question, Laura. Janine, what do you think? <laughs> no, absolutely not. Unless they're all hiding, because <laughs> although I do see people with dogs in Paris, there's not that many. I can kind of understand why someone might think it, though, because it is true that You know, the city has a bit of a reputation for having dog poop on the pavements. But, you know, to me, that's just another reputation. I don't find that true either. So, no, it's not true, Laura. Yeah, you're right, Janine. There are way more people than dogs in Paris. And I agree, the pavements are not that bad at all. Thanks so much for that question, Laura. If you also have a question for us, feel free to send it to Janine at thegoodlifefrance.com or via our podcast newsletter. And if there is a topic you want to know more about, let us know. This is The Good Life France podcast. Oh la la, le podcast The Good Life France. Thank you so much, everyone. A huge merci beaucoup to everyone for listening to our podcast from all around the world. And an enormous thank you for sharing the podcast with your friends and family. We're so grateful to you for that. Yes, we are. You've been listening to Janine March and me, Olivier Geoffrey. You can find me at parischanson.fr. And you can find me and heaps of information about France, where to visit, culture, history, recipes, everything France at thegoodlifefrance.com, where you can also subscribe to the podcast, my weekly newsletter about France and our totally brilliant, totally free magazine, which you can read at magazine.thegoodlifefrance.com. But for now, it's au revoir from me. And it's goodbye from me. Speak to you soon. The Good Life France podcast. Available on all podcast platforms. On thegoodlifefrance.com and on parischanson.fr. The most beautiful French songs of the 40s, 50s and 60s. Only on Paris Chanson. Available on your mobile, smart TV, computer and smart speaker 24-7. Visit parischanson.fr to find out more. That's P-A-R-I-S-C-H-A-N-S-O-N dot F-R. Ah!